Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. Welcome back to the Light Bears podcast. Our goal here has been over the course of um, the last you know, dozen episodes of this or so to say, what is in Scripture? Uh, and, and, and to do it in a way uh, that somebody, that those of you who are listening can enter in pretty quickly and get some of the, the big storylines. And so uh, what we've done is we've finished the Old Testament. We're now turning to the New Testament today. And so um, it is Kevin McCollum, our executive director, and I, I'm Andrew Brill. And what we're going to be doing is, is just giving a quick introduction to the New Testament, what's in there, how's it different from the Old Testament, those sorts of issues. And then starting uh, with the next episode, we'll jump in book by book as we did with the Old Testament. But again, our, our goal for this is that this is a this is a good way for you to get uh, the big themes, the main storylines, and, and really how all of this uh, and all of Scripture is one story that connects to Jesus and is the story of God gaining glory for himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people. And so, Kevin, uh, I, I like these where we get to just talk for a little while. And so uh, we're going to jump into the New Testament. Let me back up just a little bit, though, to start with and say, um, you've you've always pushed us within Light Bears to say big story of Scripture, one story, one storyline. Uh, that's I mean, I've I've appreciated that personally. But just talk about why you care about uh, the big story of Scripture. Let's back up there, and then we'll start moving towards the New Testament. Yeah, I appreciate it. The um, I think a couple of reasons. One, if there is a big story, we need to know what it is. You know, we need to understand what God's doing, sort of beginning to end, and really through all eternity and. Um, but it's personal as well. You know, um, I have, um, you know, I didn't grow up in a church home. And uh, so at age 15 came to Christ. And uh, prior to that, had some exposure actually to the scriptures, um, would uh, ride a bus that would come by our house and, and um, hear stories, you know, told on the bus and songs sung about Bible characters and, and would hear um, lessons, you know, at a VBS and, and, um you know, the bus stopped running and I stopped hearing the stories. And then the next bus would come to a different church. And so I uh, would go and hear, uh, hear stories from that church. And the, that, the bus stopped running. Oh, it's just a sad moment there. Yeah. Well, the second one stopped. And so, you know, you go out and stand on the street for three or four Sundays in a row and you recognize that I guess no one's coming. And so uh, <laughs> you give up. And then uh, that's kind of was my story. Uh, three different opportunities like that. And, but through the way, even then, I'd, was familiar with a few Bible characters, but I didn't really understand really what uh, the purpose was, you know, what the point of those stories were. Um, at 15, when I came to Christ and began to attend church regularly um, in a Sunday school class, uh, a bunch of teenage boys um, began to hear the stories a little more completely, understood that, okay, David was the the guy with the, fought the giant, and Daniel, he's the guy that went down and with the lions and Maybe it wasn't Jonah the guy that was swallowed by the big fish. And so began to put some facts together, but really never understood those stories apart from a good moral lesson. And even as I grew in my faith, typically those stories were taught to me in a way that pointed to some great sense of morality or, or a principle of life. But never did they raise my eyes to see who God really was. That God, God is behind those stories. And there's a big reason these are happening. It's not, it's not to have courage in, in adversity or or, um, you know, uh, whatever the moral lesson might be of the day. But it really was about God making himself known, being glory to his name through his people. So, you know, 
Daniel in the lion's den was so that Darius would make this great declaration. There's only one God and it's the God of Israel, right? The God of Daniel or, or that, you know, Goliath fell so that um, everyone would know that the God of Israel is the one true God, right? That's really the big, the big point of those stories. And so it became really personal to me and I just saw it transform my own understanding of scripture and my own uh, understanding of who God is and, and lifting my eyes sort of above trying to think of the most moral thing to do in this situation. But but raise my eyes to Christ Himself and following His example, and um, and so wanted to do that for our students. Obviously, just wanted to see them young in their journey understand more what God was doing throughout all of Scripture. Yeah, so I think my story is um, it's it's similar in the sense of this conviction of one big story, but it, it probably arises from a a different place for me. It's probably a little more of growing up. Uh, in a church home and in a church where people talked about the Bible a lot um, and and just kind of had this growing sense of, hey, if we say we value the Bible, then we can't just ignore parts of it that that we don't like, ignore parts that we're a little less comfortable with. And so, you know, when I would read the Bible on my own, I'd come, I'd come across these stories or these moments that I'd never seen or heard before and kind of thought, well, wait a minute, if they're in here and we say the Bible is valuable, then these have to fit somewhere. And so uh, that's not a complaint against the church I was in. I mean, you can't cover the whole Bible every Sunday. It was just this reality of we can't ignore certain things, even if they make us uncomfortable. And so actually pressing into some of those moments that that um, that didn't feel as comfortable. And and the way that, in a sense, that all fit for me at the end is to say, well, there is one big story. It's not, you know, it, it's not a story in which there's one main part and the rest of it we can kind of ignore because they're not as comfortable with it. Or, you know, I, you know, I remember my mom telling me at one point she, she grew up only seeing the new Testament kind of avoiding the old Testament because she she didn't know what to do with the old Testament. And so kind of that discomfort with our, our words of the Bible mattering, not matching our actions with how we interpret the scriptures as a whole. And so that's kind of where I got to this, Hey, we need to see it as one whole so that everything has value Otherwise, we're just kind of at the mercy of what seems valuable at the moment. Uh, and so that's probably where I got to uh, kind of the same place of one big story really matters. Uh, today, we're, we're, we're turning to the page to the New Testament. Uh, literally, we could turn the page and, and go to the New Testament. But um, remind us, Kevin, what's, what's in there? What's the difference between the Old New Testament? I mean, where does that phrase even come from? Just Go very top level, thirty thousand foot view. What is the New Testament? Yeah, well, we we just spent time in the Old Testament, understanding um, sort of the the journey of God's people as He's called them to to live faithfully and holy before them, and His relationship with them, and and He made a covenant at the beginning of the Old Testament with Adam. Adam needed to obey God perfectly, and and they would have a, a eternal relationship and he could be in God's presence forever. And when Adam broke that covenant the Old Testament plays out the journey of God's people as God begins to try to restore them to fellowship, the remnant. And um, and we leave really the Old Testament with that covenant unfulfilled. God made other covenants along the way to give them the ability to worship him, to, to have a relationship with him, to have favor with him, and gave them promises of a coming Messiah that would um, usher in the fulfillment of all these covenants. But we end the Old Testament with, this simple covenant of obeying God perfectly being broken and unfulfilled. And so that old covenant hangs out there. It, it, it encompasses the law and all, all these things as well. Um, and then the new covenant we see in the New Testament, God fulfilling that 
covenant and paying the penalty due the sin for the rebellion of breaking that covenant. So the Old Testament chronicling the fall of God's people, fall of Adam and Eve, and then the, the journey of God's people before him under the law, under this covenant of works, and the New Testament ushering in a covenant of grace because one did come who, number one, obeyed God perfectly, fulfilling the covenant of works, and paid the penalty due the sin of God's people, therefore ushering in a new relationship with God. Um, so that you see Old Covenant not fulfilled in the Old Testament, the New Covenant established, the Old Covenant fulfilled New Testament, and the Old New Covenant of Grace established New Testament. Um, you kind of leave the Old Testament with this sense of longing. You know, we talked about that a little bit with Nehemiah, you know, um, this longing that is this all? Are we there yet? Uh, with Malachi ringing out that an Elijah is going to come that's going to show you the Messiah. We know that to be John the Baptist. And you start the New Testament with the Gospels where you get this great um, announcement of the birth of the Messiah, you know, the coming of the second Elijah and this birth of, of the Messiah. And you know something big is happening. God's doing something that's about to fulfill all of these uh, promises that we saw in the Old Testament. So, so we go to the New Testament. Um, and so we have a new set of books, letters uh, written, um, history books written. Um, different genres, uh, 27 different books, uh, nine authors, um, all of them written kind of A.D. 50 and later. Um, we believe most of them were finished before A.D. 70. There was an event where Rome destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. That's a key, key event that kind of marks a couple of the books. Um, Which is a big difference from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is written over hundreds of years. Right. So this is written over, you know, 40, 50 years. Right, exactly. Yet all written by people who were contemporaries of Jesus himself. You know, obviously in the Old Testament, you have very few of the writers would have known each other, right? But in the New Testament, you have this circle of, uh, um, circle of men who would have been contemporaries of Christ and of the, the apostles. I think there's a misnomer. Some people think all the Old New Testament were written by apostles or that maybe the four gospels are written by apostles, but that's not true. But but all of the New Testament books have their origin back to one of the 12. Right. And really, if you, if you look at the different writings, you really come up with three of the apostles who were primary, right? You kind of have what's called this, these three circles of influences. You have the Petrine Circle. It's a cool name, right? Petrine. Uh, Peter. Um, Peter uh, obviously wrote First and Second Peter, but Peter was the major influencer for Matthew, Mark, Jude, James, um, that's sort of the, his circle of influence. So a lot of those stories, some of, the, some of those would have come firsthand, but a lot of those came through Peter and Peter's influence and Peter's teaching. For example, we know from the early church um, that, that Mark uh, traveled with Peter and wrote down Peter's discourses, right? So we know that Peter was a huge influence of Mark. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so Peter, Paul would have been another one, obviously. Paul wrote 13 letters himself, um, would have been the huge influence for uh, Luke, who wrote Luke-Acts, Hebrews uh, also. So even though Paul wasn't one of the 12, Scripture tells us he was one of the apostles. Um, and so that's, in a sense, why you say three apostles were primary. That's Paul right. is one of those. That's right. Paul, having seen Jesus, being commissioned by Christ himself, um, as the other apostles were, exactly. And the other was the Apostle John. 
in John having written John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. So you really have these three circles of influence, Peter, Paul, John, that um, through others really influence and, and you see the, their um, hand heavy upon these um, books of the, of the New Testament. So, so that, that's a little bit, it's, it's, as we said, it's a quick introduction to kind of just kind of understand, but they also are written in different genres. Right, and you're you have a literary background. You know that's kind of your um, your world, and um, I think that uh, it seems like you really appreciate the Old and New Testament survey not only because the weight of Scripture and the value of Scripture, but also because you're a literature jock and nerd and love it. All so what it is. T- talk a little bit about <laughs> yeah. the New Testament and what, what genre and content. Yeah. Um, well, really, you know, yeah. When you study literature, you, you look at things like genre like beginnings and endings who's the audience what's the setting and all of those really thematic kind of things and so yeah i I get fired up about reading uh books of the bible whether it's you know esther or matthew or second john or whatever and saying reading the whole thing and saying okay what seems to be important to the author here and and really you you have to check yourself a little bit there and say and yet we trust it's the holy spirit who's carrying these authors along as scripture tells us uh, and so what's important to the author is important to God himself, because the Holy Spirit is the one who's, who's, who is um, carrying him along, carrying the human author along. And so um, there are different genres here in the New Testament. There, there's, you know, people count these different ways, but there's probably four different genres. You have the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are Gospels, uh, and the Gospels, uh, they are similar to a biography and yet different they in that you know there are you know their biographies and yet they don't mention pretty much anything until Jesus turns 30 there are a couple of spotty moments in between yeah i think there are two total chapters in the gospels that right. have a mention of Jesus before he's 30 right whereas you know a traditional biography um my uh, my wife just read uh Michelle Obama's autobiography well a whole lot of attention is paid to her her early years, because that's interesting. That's formational. And yet that's not what the gospel writers are focused on. Um, And so that's why it's not, it's not really classified as a biography. It's a, it's a, it's a gospel. And in essence, and and people look at these historically and say, this is a new genre that didn't really exist before. Yeah. There's similarities in other genres, but this is a new genre in terms of it is, I mean, the word gospel, good news, that there is good news here. It is news. It's new uh, and it's good. And so it's packaged in the form of a, of a story of a man, Jesus, uh, but it's not simply a biography. So you have gospel, then you have Acts, which is, uh, it's it's history. Um, it's just a, a historical narrative. Um, that's probably has the best parallel in the Old Testament because you have books like Kings and Chronicles, which are historical narratives. In the New Testament, Acts is a historical narrative. It traces the church uh, for, you know, 30 some odd years uh, from the time Jesus ascended back to heaven until Paul is... Um, in essentially house arrest and yet and yet preaching the gospel, so it's a it's a history of the church and of the work of the Holy Spirit within the church. Then you have a series of letters; uh, they're called epistles. Uh, most of them are written by Paul, but several others or a few others have written. James wrote one, and Peter wrote some. So you have a series of epistles, and then finally you have Revelation, which is in the genre of um, apocalyptic literature. Um, it's called eschatological, but basically um, it is. Kind of there, there's some some end times language in there, but but apocalyptic literature is not simply end times. It's more about the type of writing that there is. There's a prophetic piece. There's a 
um, a visionary piece to it. Um, and so it stands alone. And, and as you read through the New Testament, you get to Revelation, you say, yeah, this isn't like anything else in the New Testament. It's more like something like Ezekiel in the Old Testament, which is also apocalyptic rather than the rest of the New Testament. So you have gospels, you have history, you have epistles or letters, uh, and then you have um, apocalyptic literature and revelation. Yeah, and, and of course, within any of those genres, they have different genres within the genres, right? right? As you're reading the gospels, you have parables, which have a, a different feel. Even in Revelation, there's some other genres within it that are not apocalyptic. But um, And it's, it's good to know the genres, you know, as you're reading an epistle, and Paul says, for example, uh, you know, or John, I'm thinking of um, one of the epistles of John, he says, okay, Greek Gaius. Well, we don't read that today and think, oh, shoot, I got to find somebody named Gaius and greet him. Right. You know, because it's an epistle, it is written to a specific church. And so there are things there that apply that are timeless. All scriptures God breathed. And yet you recognize the genre says, okay, but, but this applied in a different way to this specific group. And so knowing the genre really helps you. Um, I want to be cautious that people don't have to do literary criticism to be followers of Jesus. Right. <laughs> you know, um, anyone can read it. You don't have to know Greek to be a follower of Jesus. And so you don't have to know this stuff. But having kind of a top level understanding can help you kind of sift through some of it a little bit um, as you're reading. Yeah, I think it's important. I think uh, just a real basic hermeneutic or you know uh, a method of um, understanding scripture. It's a little bit lost. I think. I think it was good for me just the simple understanding of the, the different purposes of the genres. And I think for me personally, it was helpful to understand that parables aren't intended to be sort of an allegory. You know, they're different. The parable gives one big point. So if you if you read a parable and your whole view of God changes because of some character in it or or some you know action or whatever, then um, you're probably misunderstanding the parable. The parable is intended to say, look, here's here's a big deal. The kingdom of God is worth it, right? The kingdom of God is worth selling everything you have, no matter what it takes to find, because there's nothing in this world more valuable than the kingdom of God. That's really the big point, say, of a parable. Um, you know, the the pearl of great price or whatever. Um, but then we can, if you if you don't understand that, you can parse that parable out and and think, well, that 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 guy was a crook. Like he he knew the pearl was there, or he knew, or he knew the hidden treasure was in a field. Used that one, and yet didn't reveal that. And he bought the field, and so God likes us to be deceptive. Uh, right. You get the point. Right. So yeah, I yeah. think understanding genre really does help you understand um, the purpose and, and understand what God intends to communicate. So um, so it's great, and I think. You know, we all, Scripture itself bears witness that it's all God-breathed. You, you mentioned that earlier. Um, that's 2 Timothy 3, obviously 16, 17. It's breathed out by God and it's profitable. We know that to be true. You know, Hebrews 4 talks about the Word of God being living and active and sharp and able to like discern our hearts and our intentions of our heart. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, Peter, actually, in 2 Peter 3, calls Paul's letters Scripture, right? which is pretty awesome to see. Peter himself, an apostle, saying what Paul is writing is scripture, um, but but not everybody would buy that because in their mind it's circular reasoning. Now we know that these are separate letters, so they're not one book reasoning with each other. These are separate accounts that all bear witness to the the authority of God behind them. So in, in a sense, we've got twenty seven sources here, you know, all pointing to the same direction, validating one another. So right. that's a pretty good list of sources. Right, right. But someone might say, "Well, but they're they're all one Bible, so therefore the Bible can't." So, what what about people who are literary critics or or want to 
complain, you know, that these texts aren't accurate? I mean, do, do we have a response or should we feel pressure to, to respond to that? And how maybe basically would we do that? Yeah. And, and I mean, I'll be, you got to be intellectually honest here and say, there are really intelligent people who study this a lot. They have lots of initials after their name to, to quote their, their degrees that would look at this and say, no, I don't, I don't buy this and here's why, and here's the, you know, textual problems with it. And yet to be intellectually honest, you also have to say, there's a lot of really intelligent people with a lot of letters after their names who are believers who have studied this and said, nope, I, I see that this is true, and 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 there's a faith piece to that. There's also a, they've studied it a lot, and so um, I always want to be cautious um, to to not say, boy, all the academics are against scripture, because no, you, you can dig into this and study, it, and there's a lot of a lot of good evidence for the reliability of this. So yeah, and let me insert that there are a lot of unbelievers who will validate the reliability right. that these are oh, the yeah. original. These these are exactly as the originals would be. They don't see them as scripture. But they do see this is a letter that Mark wrote, and this is accurate. And you'd almost be intellectually dishonest to say Italy and the Odyssey and some of these other ancient books are are accurate, and say somehow that any of these books of the Bible, any of these letters, are inaccurate because there's so much more weight All right. academically yeah. and historically for the reliability of the letters than there is to any other yeah. ancient book. So Yeah, I mean, statistically, we have over 5,800 5, Greek manuscripts uh, for, the, for the New Testament. Well, you compare that to, say, the Iliad, the Odyssey. I mean, you're talking in the tens, the hundreds of manuscripts. Well, nobody subjects the Odyssey to the same level of criticism nor should they. Right. People aren't claiming the Odyssey are, right. are, are divine, uh, divinely inspired. And so the Bible should be held up to a higher standard. Um, but I think it's important to recognize we have I mean, 5,800 copies of manuscripts here. We're not, we, do not, we do not have the original manuscripts. We have 5,800 copies. And as scholars have looked at this, I mean, there's over 99% consistency between the different manuscripts that we have. So we are very, very confident that we have what was in the original, and there are no major doctrines that are in dispute as we look at what we have. So, yes, there's you know a comma here or there that we're not 100% sure about. There's a few verses at the end of Mark that may have been added by the church a little bit later. You know, So you have some things like that, but it's no major doctrines that are in question. Uh, and again, I mean, the number of manuscripts we have is just astronomical by archaeological uh, standards. You can also go back and, I mean, I mentioned archaeology. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of different things, such as you know Pontius Pilate is mentioned um, in in archaeological sources. You have this guy Josephus who wrote and mentioned Jesus. So you know, so you have all these other writings and other archaeological evidence that points to things that are within the New Testament itself. So, so uh, number one, I mean, there's just a whole lot that's out there that points back to Scripture. Number two, I, th- I think that it is important to recognize that the church when they were doing this. This was not simply a history goes to the winners and they found their favorite books and silenced all the other books that they didn't like. You know, things like the Gospel of Judas that'll pop up or, or, you know, whatever. It's not as if that was a primary book that lots of people bought into and, and the church said, no, we don't, we don't buy into that. The way that the church went about selecting, in a sense, what was in the New Testament is they had three criteria. Essentially, they said it had to be tied to one of the apostles. You talked about that. Number two, it had to be orthodox in its teaching. So it had to, be consistent with the doctrines that were taught elsewhere. Um, 
which is how anyone would make good decisions. And then number three is they said um, it had to be unanimously approved by the churches. So essentially all they did is they said, these are the things that we are already treating as scripture. Now we're simply going to um, codify, to put them together, but they were already using them all. That's why, for example, let's say, I mean, Paul talks about other letters that he wrote. So in 2 Corinthians, he says, I wrote you another letter. 1 Corinthians is the same thing. So there are other letters to the Corinthians. Let's say, hypothetically, we stumbled across 3 Corinthians. Is that scripture? No, it's not, because that wasn't universally used and accepted by the church at that time. It's not that every single thing Paul wrote was scripture. That's right. It was that the church recognized what they were using, what caught, what what they agreed on doctrinally. Um, and when I say they, I mean what the books agreed on doctrinally. And what was tied to an apostle. And so um, officially, uh, the first time we see a list of these books is um, a church father named Athanasius in the late 300s. But you you also see a list uh, by a guy named Origen in the mid-200s where he mentions the same books. And so very, very early on, these books were in high usage by church. And again, this is before the printing press. So you know it's, it's a little more challenging than you realize to actually put the book together, but they got together and they said, we're all using these books. We all agree that they're inspired. Let's move forward. Yeah, I think it's a great point. We don't get the view that in the 300s, some council came together and said, let's let's sort of give authority to these letters. What they recognize is these letters have authority in and of themselves, you know, from God. And so therefore we're going to make them easier for the churches to get their hands on these letters. And, um, and so they, they saw the authority, the churches universally saw the authority. They were already trying to living out the mandates, They're already seeing God's blessing and fruit as they would obey the teachings in these letters, um, universally. And, and so the church was already recognized that authority. Uh, and so, so there was really more of the technical work of putting them together, of agreeing that this is the list and making that sort of a matter of church discipline to sort of this is going to guard us well, and anything beyond this is is going to be considered, um, you know, not authoritative. And so we use the term canon to to um, understand the books of the scriptures that we have today, um, and we say the canon is closed, which means if Third Corinthians or if a letter from Thomas or whatever begins to begins to circulate, or they find a scroll somewhere that is old, we recognize that the early church knew about it and didn't see that as authority. And we believe by God's sovereign hand, we have what he has for us. And God has preserved it, you know, all the way, all the way through, which is... And we have to trust God with that. I mean, in Acts 15, as they're at the Council of Jerusalem, the way that they kind of solidify things is they say, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And, and you think about the phrase there, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. And this was a big doctrine. This is, should we circumcise or not? And yet what they say as a church is they say, we trust that the Holy Spirit is present as we make these, have these conversations and make these decisions, we have the Old Testament with us. We have people who were with Jesus with us who can vouch for how he talked and taught and acted and all those things. And they say, and now the Holy Spirit came. We're going to trust that he has carried us along. And so there is a faith piece as well to say, we trust the Holy Spirit in this. So uh, the other thing I'll say is, um, Kevin, I, you know, you and I will freely say we're not the experts on this. And there's a lot of, of really intelligent people that are out there and writing on this. There's a guy named Craig Bloomberg, who's one of the real experts on this. And so you can get on YouTube and, and see Q and a sessions with him. You can read his stuff. 
he's one example that's that's well known and, and well respe- respected. Uh, but there's there's others out there, and so I I would really just encourage people go go check this stuff out, go look into it. Um, we as Christians should be the biggest advocates of digging into um, historical truth and not not hide from it. Yeah. So even if you don't have time to do the research, or today you want some comfort, you can recognize that almost universally accepted that these uh, letters hold up to the strongest literary criticism. There's there's not a, a fear that that you're going to find you know some some account out there that's going to rock rock your faith that these uh, these letters aren't accurate. So. Uh, even those who don't believe their scripture uphold their integrity, which I think is is great. And the Lord doesn't have to do that. It's by faith that we follow after Christ anyway, and by faith that we read this uh, scripture and and uh, believe it. Uh, and yet God's just goodness, kindness to give us these um, architectural findings or the Dead Sea Scrolls or or other things that that boost our faith. Yeah, I could I could nerd out for a while here and and talk about some of the the little intricacies of the text that really reinforce their historical accuracy and all that. But for the sake of time, I won't do it. Um, and, and some of our uh, later podcasts, we may get into that and we'll talk about the different gospels and, and individually what they get into. But um, again, just want to do a quick introduction to the new Testament. So we'll, we'll stop there, but uh, look forward to the next, uh, the next few episodes of this podcast. And, and really um, our hope and our, our prayer is that uh, the Lord would use his word to uh to to not just increase head knowledge but to to transform hearts so uh look forward to it Evan. we'll talk again soon you've been listening to the light bears institute podcast a production of light bears ministries for more information visit lightbears.com.